on a cultural crusade all across America. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And what a great day it is as we honor this great holiday season by taking a very special look at the most influential, the most widely celebrated, the most important holiday on earth. Christmas. And yet so many people don't know about the origins of Christmas, don't know about the controversies surrounding Christmas, bitter controversies here in the early years of the United States, don't know the fact that many of the people who founded this country even opposed the Christmas holiday. People don't know about where some of the symbols, some of the traditions of Christmas time come from. We're going to take a look at all of those questions in this very special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, The Secret History of the Christmas Holiday. And though everybody likes to think of that history as reaching back into the mists of time, and to the first Christmas that marked the birth of Jesus, the truth of the matter is that there is very, very little agreement on the actual date in which Jesus Christ was born. One of the few things that virtually all scholars seem to agree is that he wasn't born in wintertime. Now, I know that's terrible to say, but it is very important to understand that Christmas is a relatively recent holiday, in terms of its universal acceptance. And certainly the way it's celebrated has all come into being relatively recently in the last thousand years and even more recently than that. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned about marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. They expected him to come back to earth at any time, so why bother creating a special birthday festival? And one of the earliest and most influential church fathers, the great scholar Origen, who was born about 185 A.D., so he lived, uh, oh, say, 150 years after Jesus, he opposed the entire idea of trying to observe his birthday because he preached that it would be wrong to honor Christ in the same way that Pharaoh and Herod were honored. Birthdays, he said, were for pagan gods and rulers, not for the Son of God and the Messiah. Therefore, there always was some opposition to honoring Christ's birth. But that didn't prevent early Christian scholars from trying to speculate on when he was born. Clement of Alexandria, who was born about the year 150 A.D., determined that from everything he could gather, Jesus Christ was born on May 20th. Others argued for April 18th, April 19th, or May 28th. The one thing that you'll see that all these dates have in common is springtime, and that makes a great deal of sense, because one of the very few details you'll find in the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not repeat could not have been in December. Because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time it was very common for shepherds to take their flocks indoors to put the sheep inside so they wouldn't get cold at night starting in November and they wouldn't bring them out again until March. 
And even though Bethlehem is in the more southern part of Judea, and it's a little bit less cold, it still doesn't make any sense. It also doesn't make a great deal of sense that during the winter time, the rainy season in Judea, that that is the time that uh, Joseph and Mary would make a rather arduous journey all the way from Nazareth down south as far as Bethlehem. So December 25th, probably not. And this has been an item that's been argued about for a very, very long time. It was only beginning in about the year 270 that people began observing a Feast of the Nativity on December 25th. One of the reasons that the early church fathers did that is because it was already a big holiday season. So it would fit if you were going to try to reach out to pagans, if you were going to try to reach out to people who weren't yet Christian, it would fit to try to incorporate a Christian basis for a holiday that already existed. What holiday was it? Well, in Roman times, in particular, it was a big old holiday called Saturnalia, which celebrated all kinds of things, but it was associated with the titan Saturn who's also the Greek titan Kronos, who wasn't such a pleasant guy. He had a very nasty habit of eating his own children, and he eventually was killed by one of his children, Zeus, Jupiter, by being made to eat a rock. But that didn't stop the Romans, of course, from celebrating this guy. And the entire basis for the celebration was associated with the pattern of the sun. Because December 25th in the old calendar was the time of winter solstice. That would be a natural time for celebration because after the days getting shorter and shorter and shorter and having less and less sun, that would be the day that the sun was reborn, that the sun god was reborn even, that all of a sudden after days getting shorter and shorter on December 21st, then the days start getting a little bit longer and a little bit longer. This festival of Saturnalia in ancient Rome was a week, sometimes two weeks, of extremely enthusiastic and energetic feasting and drinking and actually a great deal of the Christian Christmas tradition actually seems to fit very, very well with the observance of Saturnalia. For instance, the Saturnalia was celebrated annually from December 17th to the 23rd and then later in Roman history it was even extended beyond that. People gave gifts all courts were closed. Nobody was allowed to be convicted of a crime during that time period. And all men, both slave and free, rich and poor, were considered to be equal for that week. People often did masquerades. They put on masks. They had parties. They had celebrations. And Romans were governed only by the three laws of the priest of Cronus during the holiday. That's the priest of Saturn that is being celebrated during Saturnalia. Those three laws were, number one, all businesses shall be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those which tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall be either composed or delivered except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity. In fact, even the tradition of observing the holiday with greens, with greenery, was part of the Saturnalia tradition in ancient Rome. They would have, apparently, big banquets where they would bring in the boughs from evergreen trees. Evergreen trees, of course, 
would commemorate the idea that life goes on, that it was the dead of winter, but the sun was getting reborn and life was reborn. There also was a particular emphasis on holly, which would be given along with gifts. The homes would be decorated with evergreen wreaths and garlands, and dolls would be given to children, candles to friends, and fruit symbols representing increase, representing the growth of the sun, would be very common. Now, what's not particularly Christian about this old Roman celebration of Saturnalia is, um, if you look in the dictionary, it says the festival of Saturn in ancient Rome, beginning on December 17th, and then the secondary meaning is an unrestrained, often licentious celebration, orgy, excess, extravagance. Now, that's not the way that Christians would want to think about Christmas. So how was it that this old Roman celebration of Saturnalia got transformed into the Christian Christmas, a time of holiness, of dedication, a time that didn't represent the rebirth of the sun, but represented the birth of the Son of God? Well, that story gets very complicated and very interesting because it involves another religion, not Roman paganism, but a Persian pagan religion that followed another god, Mithras. And that god who died to atone for people's sins was born and worshipped by shepherds on December 25th. And most scholars believe that part of the selection of the date of December 25th by the early church leaders had to do with this Persian god, Mithras. Much more on this very special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, entitled, The Secret History of the Christmas Holiday. On this very special edition of the Michael Medved Show for the holiday season, we're taking a detailed look at the secret history of the Christmas holiday. And part of that secret history involves the way that Christmas ended up swallowing up and transforming two other holidays, and actually more than two over the years, but initially swallowing up two other holidays that were already well-established in the December period in the days of the Roman Empire. Those two holidays were the semi-official pagan holiday in Rome, Saturnalia, the Feast of Saturn. Lots of drinking and eating and feasting and gift-giving and greenery brought in. But that Saturnalia feast began December 17th in the Roman calendar. It was also centered around the winter solstice, another holiday that specifically took place on December 25th, was the sacred birthday of Mithras. Now, there's not a lot of attention to Mithras today, because this seems like an almost irrelevant cult. But at the time that Christianity was fighting for survival in the Roman Empire, the followers of Mithras were a very, very powerful force, particularly because they dominated the Roman legions, the army. They were tremendously influential. This was a Persian cult 
that had a lot of points of similarity with Christianity, at least superficial similarities. Mithras, this Persian god, was a warrior god, a warrior for light, and he expected his followers to also be warriors for goodness and light. He was born on December 25th, and according to Mithraic tradition, he was born out of a rock, and that was a miracle that was only seen by a few shepherds who brought gifts and came and gathered around the baby God and adored him for quite a while after his birth. Other points of similarity between Mithraism and Christianity involved the sanctification of Sunday, as well as the sanctification of the 25th of December. Remember, of course, that the Jewish religion that Christianity sprang out of had sanctified not Sunday, but Saturday. Christians ended up in line with the Mithraists, which were a much more influential religious group at the time. Also, the Mithraists believed in the atoning sacrifice, constant warfare between good and evil, a last judgment, resurrection of the body and the flesh, and the ultimate fiery destruction of the universe. So there was direct competition between the Mithraeus and the Christians. And part of the decision of the early Christian church fathers to celebrate Christmas on December 25th was not only to co-opt Saturnalia, this big popular Roman feast, but to specifically appeal to the very key people in the Roman army who were celebrating the feast of Mithras by appropriating that day, December 25th. And therefore, you have the first ever Christian calendar that has a specific mention of December 25th as the birthday of Jesus Christ. That calendar was the calendar of Philoclus, which was published in 354 A.D. And what that calendar says is it says, Year 1, after Christ the Lord Jesus Christ was born on December 25th, a Friday, and 15th day of the new moon. Well, the problem here is they could calculate that December 25th, A.D. 1, wasn't a Friday, it was a Sunday. But there is still, even with this association of the birthday of Jesus Christ on December 25th, even going forward to this 354 A.D., there's still no clear demonstration of a widespread celebration of the birthday at that time. Remember, there had been objections from some of the early church fathers to celebrating his birthday at all. Easter was already well established. The idea of celebrating his resurrection made a lot of sense. And in the Eastern Church, they had already begun celebrating the Feast of the Epiphany. That was on January 6th. Now, this will help to explain what lots of people wonder about all the time. The 12 days of Christmas. What are the 12 days of Christmas? The 12 days of Christmas are the days in between Christmas itself and then the 12th night, right? Like the title of the Shakespeare play, the 12th day, which is January 6th, which is the Feast of the Epiphany. For the Eastern Church, originally, before Christmas got established and got recognized and got mandated by the Emperor Constantine and subsequent Roman emperors, for the Eastern Church, January 6th marked both the day that they celebrated and observed the birth of Jesus Christ and his baptism. But then later, when the mainstream church authorized December 25th as the day, the Eastern Church kept the Feast of the Epiphany, 12 days after Christmas, to remember and to observe and to commemorate the baptism of Jesus. For the Western Church, 
that day, January 6th, Feast of the Epiphany, represented the day that the Magi finally arrived with their gifts for the Christ child. In any event, that entire 12-day period became, before long, a period of feasting that would recall elements of the Saturnalia, the idea of transforming these pagan observances, like the Feast of Mithras and Saturnalia, into a holy observance for religious Christians, was defended by one theologian as early as 320. He said, we hold this day holy, not like the pagans because of the birth of the sun, but because of him who made the sun. And another early scholar commented that it was appropriate that Christians celebrate the birth of him who came as the light of the world at the time that pagans were celebrating simply the physical light. But all of this meant that some of those traditions of paganism, including the revelry, including the celebration, including the gift-giving, would become part of the Christmas tradition. And part of that also involved another Roman festival that also occurred at the time of the winter solstice. The Romans observed Juvenalia. That was a feast honoring the children of Rome. So all of this gets folded into the emerging Christmas holiday. But it wasn't until nearly a thousand years after the holiday originated that it was universally observed that traditions began to emerge that everyone would recognize and that everyone would observe together. One of the other traditions that was folded into the observance of Christmas was from Scandinavia, where in Scandinavia during the winter months, way up north in northern Europe, the sun simply goes away. It just disappears. You have all night, all day, darkness. And what would happen is after the the biggest disappearance of the sun, after 35 days, scouts would be sent to mountaintops to look for the return of the sun. When the first light was seen after 35 days of darkness, the scouts would return with the good news. A great festival would be held called Yuletide, which comes from the old Norse word meaning wheel, as in wheeling around. And that would be observed with a fire burning with a Yule log. There'd be great bonfires also lit to celebrate the return of the sun. And people would tie apples to branches of trees to remind themselves that spring and summer would return as we will return with more on the secret history of the Christmas holiday. of the Michael Medved Show for this festive season, the subject, the secret history of the Christmas holiday. And part of that history involves the incorporation of all kinds of pagan traditions from around the world, from Persia, from ancient Rome, and from the ancient Viking lands as well. The old Norsemen believed that the sun was a great big wheel of fire that rolled towards earth and then away from Earth. That's how they understood things like the fact that days got longer and days got shorter. So the sun was referred to as a wheel. The ancient Norse word for wheel was hawil, 
which became Yule. And their celebration of that wheel coming back toward Earth was the festival of Hawi'ol, or Yule, which became, in our tradition, in our culture, Yuletide, or Yule Log. The Yule Log was part of the Norse tradition that became part of the Christmas tradition. But all of this borrowing and all of this transformation of various pagan celebrations didn't sit well with absolutely everybody, because there were some church fathers who thought very early on, even when Christmas was just getting started, when it was a brand new holiday, that people carried things too far. For instance, there's a fascinating commentary by a guy named Gregory of Nazianzen, who died in the year 389 A.D. He was a prelude to all those people who say people have commercialized Christmas. They're not celebrating the true spirit of Christmas. They're taking it too far. Here's what he said back in the 4th century A.D. He urged that the celebration of the Christmas festival be conducted after an heavenly and not after an earthly manner. And he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing and crowning the doors, meaning putting some kind of wreaths or decorations around the doorways. But this did not stop people from all over Europe, and particularly from England, from celebrating the holiday in a very festive way, in terms of drinking, card-playing, singing, dancing, dressing up. There was all kinds of behavior that was sanctioned, that was part of the Christmas festivities that during the rest of the year the church would frown upon. For instance, if you look at some of the descriptions of the way that in medieval England people celebrated the Christmas holiday, you'd have people dressing up in masquerades as mummers. That would be people who would dress up as animals, often as geese, often darken their faces to make themselves unrecognizable, and they'd go from house to house, sometimes even entering houses without permission, and the whole idea was this was a way that poor people could get Christmas gifts, kindness, generosity, which was appropriate for the spirit of the season, from people who had something to give them. They might dance, sing, feast, and act a rude drama mocking propriety and challenging the social order, which again is a reflection of the old Roman festival of Saturnalia, when you'll remember that there was no distinction made between slave and master. By that same token, the whole idea was that the festival of Christ's birth, there should be no distinction among people who are rich and favored and those who are less favored. But all of this celebration and all of this merriment didn't sit well, particularly after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints' days. He had a tough time with the whole idea of saints and the deification of saints and the Catholic obsession with relics and name days and saints' days. And the fact is that Christmas was one of only many, many feasts in the old Catholic church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them so that some of his followers in the years after the Reformation also felt that Christmas was a danger, that Christmas was inappropriate. Why? Because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to biblical text, follow what's in the Bible, don't add to it, don't subtract from it. And nobody could find any references to Christmas at all in the Bible. Therefore, some of the early Puritans, particularly in England, strong followers of the Protestant Reformation, were very much opposed to Christmas. For instance, Philip Stubbs wrote a book 
called The Anatomy of Abuses in 1583, in which he called people who celebrated Christmas hellhounds in a devil's dance of merriment. William Prynne wrote a book called The Histriomastics in 1633, where he said he was against all Christmas plays, masks, balls, and the decking of houses with greens. Into what a stupendous height of more than pagan impiety have we not now degenerated, he said. Christmas ought to be rather a day of mourning than rejoicing, not a time spent in amorous, mixed, voluptuous, unchristian, that I say not pagan dancing, to gods, to Christ's dishonor, religion scandal, chastity shipwreck, and sin's advantage. More about the Christmas controversy coming up. You're listening to a Michael Medved history program, The Secret History of Christmas. For more history shows, go to medvedhistorystore.com. On the Michael Medved Show, a special broadcast called The Secret History of the Christmas Holiday, where many people would be surprised with all of the warm feelings generated by Christmas carols, Christmas music, Christmas foods and traditions, that once upon a time, and really not so long ago, only a few hundred years ago, Christmas was a subject of intense controversy, even bloodshed. Yeah, that's right, because in England in the 1600s, there was almost continuous struggle between the so-called roundheads and the cavaliers, between the Puritans and the royalists. And they fought about lots of things, about the power of parliament versus the power of the king. But they also fought over Christmas because the Puritans, the side of the struggle that identified with parliament and with Oliver Cromwell, believed very strongly that Christmas was one of those elements of Catholicism that they wanted to reject. Catholics all over the world observed Christmas, had a merry old time on the Christmas holiday, but Puritans felt that Protestants should reject it. And since England was, at least officially, a Protestant country under the Church of England, not the Church of Rome, they thought it was very important to do away with Christmas. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation, Ezra Stiles, who later became one of the early presidents of Yale College, said it very well. He said, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us have known the day. The whole idea was that for the Puritans who wanted to go back to a pure, to a biblically based, to a scripturally delineated church, there was no basis at all for Christmas. So during the long struggle in the English Civil War between the Puritans and the Royalists, as the Puritans began to win, they began to do everything they could, not only to get rid of Christmas, but to actually make it illegal. I mean, in 1642, Parliament voted to outlaw Christmas plays. No more Christmas plays, no more Christmas pageants. And then they ordered that the monthly fast, there was a fast observed every month in those days for forgiveness and prayer and prosperity. That monthly fast fell on Christmas in the year 1644. Normally, if a fast day fell on Christmas, Christmas trumped it and you're to celebrate Christmas. But in 1644, Parliament said, no, you got to fast on Christmas Day. And then Parliament 
purposely met on Christmas Day every Christmas from 1644 right through till 1652. This during the period of Oliver Cromwell and the Lord Protectorate. He was the Lord Protector of England, took the place of the king. In 1647, Parliament declared Christmas a day of penance, a day to ask forgiveness, not a day of feasting. And in 1652 came the climax where Parliament strongly prohibited any observance of Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Church wardens who tried to decorate their churches for Christmas Day risked fines. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any regular business day. Now, this was the law. Nobody said it was popular. You're listening to a Michael Medved history program, The Secret History of Christmas. Part of the reason that England accepted the return of royalty, what they call the restoration, when the Stuart kings came back with Charles II, is because ordinary people, they might believe that the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, but they enjoyed Christmas. They enjoyed the caroling, the going out and singing. They enjoyed the celebration, the dressing up, the revelry, the drinking. And this kind of struggle between people who rejected Christmas, who thought it was a danger, who thought it was inappropriate, and people who loved it, that kind of struggle also carried over to the United States. Because, of course, the Puritans not only had some power in England, and for a while had power over the whole country, but they are the people who established New England, who established the colonies of Connecticut, Massachusetts first, of course, Rhode Island, though Rhode Island was a little bit more relaxed in its attitude, Vermont later, New Hampshire, all of those colonies frowned on Christmas and frowned on it very strongly. For instance, the very famous Puritan preacher, Increase Mather, wrote, Men dishonor Christ more in the twelve days of Christmas than in all the twelve months besides. He wrote that in his diary. Then he reiterated the case against Christmas in a pamphlet he wrote called A Testimony Against Several Profane and Superstitious Customs Now Practiced by Some in New England. In the Apostolic Times, Mather wrote, The Feast of the Nativity was not observed. It can never be proved that Christ was born on December 25th. The New Testament allows of no stated holy day but the Lord's Day, meaning the Sabbath. It is in compliance with a pagan Saturnalia that Christmas holy days were first invented. The manner of Christmas keeping, as generally observed, is highly dishonorable to the name of Christ. In Massachusetts as well, Christmas was banned. In fact, people were prohibited from forbearing of labor, feasting, or of any other way of observing Christmas. That by the Massachusetts General Court in 1659. Cotton Mather, the son of Increase Mather, an even more famous preacher, said, Can you in your consciences think that our Holy Savior is honored by mirth, by long eating, by hard drinking, by lewd gaming, by rude reveling, by a mass fit for none but a Saturn or a Bacchus or the light of Mohammedan Ramadan? Shall it be said that at the birth of our Savior we take the time to please the hellish legions? 
and to do actions that have much more of hell than of heaven in them. Well, this controversy continued because, of course, the New England colonies weren't the only colonies in young America. There were also southern colonies, and the southern colonies going all the way back to Captain John Smith, that's right, in Jamestown, starting in 1607, those colonies enjoyed their Christmas celebrations, and they liked to celebrate them in the old-fashioned way, getting roaring drunk and shooting off guns. This southern tradition and more will be explored as we continue on the secret history of the Christmas holiday. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. With names changing on public buildings and statues coming down almost everywhere, the cancel culture now also wants to remake our money. A full page in the New York Times proposed new faces for our coins and bills, emphasizing diversity and artistic achievement, not political leadership. They wanted Marsha P. Johnson, a self-described black drag queen and activist, for the $10 bill, with Wilma Menkiller, first female chief of the Cherokee Nation, for the $5 bill. More than 50 other historical figures also received consideration, with white males mentioned only if they were gay or leftist radicals. This meant no Mark Twain, no Frank Lloyd Wright, no Frank Capra, no George Gershwin, and so forth. In fact, reviewing the Times list reveals an inconvenient truth. In the arts, as in government, the American tradition has been shaped most importantly, though hardly exclusively, by males of European ancestry. Pretending otherwise counts as both ignorant and dishonest. I'm Michael Medved. On this special edition of the Michael Medved Show, we're discussing the secret history of the Christmas holiday. And part of that secret history involves raging controversy throughout the 1600s, both in America and in England, about Christmas itself. The Puritans strongly rejected Christmas, thought it was a terrible idea, was a pagan addition to the scriptures, an inappropriate one. But once the Puritans lost in England and were thrown out of power and the Stuart kings came back, the battle was basically over. There were still individual churches that resisted the Christmas holiday, but Christmas became very well established in England. In the New World, however, it was different because the Puritans maintained a great deal of influence in New England. They continued to outlaw and reject Christmas. In Pennsylvania also, the Quakers were very strongly opposed to any celebration of the Christmas holiday, so Pennsylvania was also anti-Christmas, and all of that contrasted with the South and with the mountain states, the new mountain states, places like Tennessee and Kentucky that were eventually settled. But in the South in particular, Christmas was a very big deal and would often be the occasion for rough humor and all kinds of rustic celebrations. One James Lamar remembers his youth in colonial Georgia, and he wrote that me and ten or eight of my friends would arm ourselves with anything that would shoot. We'd do so on Christmas Eve. Later in the night, we set out for miles and miles visiting every house far and near in the whole neighborhood. At every house, we sneaked as close to the bedroom as possible. With cocked guns in hand, we became as still as death, waiting for the whispered command, Fire! And by the time the man of the house had fallen over a few chairs and the women screamed and the baby squalled a little, they found out it was Christmas Eve. Sometimes 
They invited us boys in for Christmas pies and things, including perhaps a little eggnog. So they were having a merry time. There was all the difference in the world between the South and the North, particularly New England, in the celebration of Christmas. This was one sectional struggle that the South ultimately won. How? Why was it that Christmas prevailed? Ultimately became our great national holiday, but not an official holiday recognized by the federal government until after the Civil War, the war between the states in 1870. We'll get to that and so many other fascinating tales of the origins of Christmas symbols and traditions. That's all part of this special broadcast. If you want a tape of this broadcast or any other history shows that we've done from time to time on the Michael Medved Show, you can get that through Tree Farm Communications on either tape or CD. Tree Farm Communications, the phone number, 800 468 0464. That's 800 468 0464. You can't appreciate a glorious holiday like Christmas, now celebrated around the world, until you appreciate and understand the long and sometimes complicated struggle to achieve that celebration, which we'll talk about part of the history of this greatest nation on God's green earth. 